Welcome to Prescription for Justice. My name is Martin Donahue. If you missed the first part of this series with Dr. David Rosner, you're in for a treat. You can watch it on YouTube at Prescription for Justice. We're talking about lead. David Rosner is currently the Ronald H. Lauderstein Professor of Sociomedical Sciences and co-director of the Center for the History and Ethics of Public Health at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health and a member of the National Academy of Sciences, National Academy of Medicine. He's the author of numerous books. We've been talking about lead, which has been around for centuries. In fact, it's been around since the creation of the planet, uh, used for millennia in plumbing, uh, used during much of the 20th century in paint and in gasoline, and still found today in plumbing, uh, in gasoline in just a few parts of the world, in the house paint of many houses that are still extant, as well as in toys, Ayurvedic medicines, and is used in gold mining to separate the gold from its amalgam. We talked briefly about the health consequences of lead and the environmental consequences of lead, and Dr. Rosner told us about his own personal story of becoming interested in occupational health and in the history of medicine. We talked about the auto industry, where lead was used as an anti-knocking agent, and in paint, where it helped the paint adhere to the walls, and briefly about how the auto industry started to recognize that paint, which had been known already as an industrial toxin, was more of an environmental toxin. But the question of underlying much of his investigation has been, what did these industries know, when did they know it, and how long did they cover it up? So coming back to the auto industry, David, uh, they started to see this loony disease where the employees would be swatting at butterflies and bring us forward from there. Sure. So in the early 1920s, General Motors basically began a program of building these muscle cars as we now know them, the Cadillacs, the, um, the Buicks, the you know, giant Chevrolets with powerful engines. And they had a tremendous interest in it, one, because it allowed them to produce a very different car than the Model T, which dominated the market at the time. And also allowed them to start catering to different parts of the population. You could have a working class car for Chevrolets, wealthy people could buy their Cadillacs, and you could basically have different kinds of accoutrements and heavier and heavier and bigger cars that go faster and faster. And they developed basically uh, a system of um, our modern marketing system where you could sell cars every three or four years by changing the brand, the color, and do things that Ford didn't do. So by the 1925, it became apparent that they depended on this lead gasoline. And the public health community became really concerned because they knew it was an environmental toxin, occupational toxin, a toxin for workers. But, and the idea that you would put it in a product that could basically be distributed throughout the country in every street in the country was terrifying, especially as the, as the car industry expanded dramatically. So there were conferences. That public health service, uh, government agencies all got together and basically argued about whether or not this occupational hazard that caused acute problems would could cause long chronic care, chronic issues that they hadn't seen before. The industry said they called lead a gift of God. Uh, they said that if you didn't use lead, we were going to run out of oil in a number of years. They thought that we only had a limited supply, that lead would extend our ability to produce 
you know, new, a new industry. And they said the fact that they had discovered that a few rats were dying when they were exposed to leaded gasoline um, from the fumes of lead, they said, if a few rats die, is that going to be really worth holding up civilization and stopping industrial progress? It was a very powerful argument of the 1920s as we emerged as a major industrial society. Mm -hmm. And the, basically, the public health community, which was much, much smaller, much less powerful, much less uh, authoritative, um, and didn't have a following of consumers who were interested in getting gas guzzling cars, basically said, stepped aside and allowed the industry to put gas into, tetraethyl gas into engines. And so from 1928 through the 1990s, we had lead literally in every gallon of gasoline, a gram of lead per gallon, which essentially meant that once it came out of the tailpipes, once it was burned and stopped and became a, a non-organic material, lead, it was basically being spread on every street in every city of the new expanding cities of the country, on every highway, in every environment we were in, in the air people breathed. Talk about a weapon of mass destruction. I mean, even today, lead kills about 675,000 people worldwide. Now, granted, we've talked about the neurological consequences, and half of those people at least die from hypertension, from damage to the kidneys, which we haven't mentioned. Um, so the rest of the 20th century went on. They knew what was going on. The regulatory bodies were weak. What finally turned the tables that got well, us what to get the lead what out of gasoline? What turned the tables was the growing awareness of environmental danger. Rachel Carson in 1962 produces a book called Silent Spring, which becomes a popular bestseller. And it's coming at a time when we're becoming very aware that the investment we've made in industry may not be really the investment we wanted to make. Mm -hmm. um, if you remember at the beginning of the 60s, uh, John F. Kennedy said the basic philosophy was better living through better chemistry. That was the DuPont slogan. Right. Uh, uh, you know, progress is our most important product. This, the pipes and the smokestacks of factories were seen as this great sign of our new industrial position and our new economic position in the world. Plastics were a brand new thing, and they seemed very popular and wonderful. Mm -hmm. But there was always this underlying sense that our nuclear energy industry was going to poison us. Mm -hmm. The nuclear bomb was great for defending ourselves in the Cold War, mm -hmm. but the Russians had it too. Mm -hmm. Nuclear energy was being understood as a, a product that was going to destroy us. And the question became, what was industry doing to us that they weren't telling us about? Mm -hmm. People were becoming suspicious. So and let's note, uh, it's important to remember a lot of this fits in with the rise of the corporation over the 20th century. and. Right. Corporations basically work by internalizing profits and externalizing public health and Close. environmental costs to us, the taxpayers. Um, but as Milton Friedman, a conservative economist, once said that the only social responsibility of a corporation is to increase its profits. Mm. So right. anything they can do that, even if secrecy is involved, will come into play. Well, that was America in the 1950s. That right. was the era That's America today. <laughs> and today, <laughs> right. yes. And we uh, were suffering for it. And lead paint, uh, similar story, I imagine. Um, lead paint can still be found in significant levels in about 25 million houses in this country. And uh, I have 
a one-year-old, uh, he will put anything in his mouth. Right. And uh, that's the problem is the lead paint starts to chip, little kids pick it up, put it in their mouth, ingest it, and thus you get the health sequela of this. And, and we talked about those neurological consequences which are known not just through brain scans, through MRI showing damage to the gray matter and the white matter in the prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain that's involved in decision making, in emotions, in rationality, uh, in regulating your attention and your impulse control. And we know that through the courageous work of other scientist activists like yourself, like, like um, the late Herbert Needleman, who right. brought much of this to the public's attention through looking at lead in teeth and then later in bones. And, and what did he find through those studies? Well, he found a very, um, a very disturbing thing, which is that we used to worry about kids who went into convulsions from eating, as you said, flakes or little chips of lead from the wall. But what he discovered is that tiny, tiny amounts of lead were having very profound effect on kids' neurological development. From the dust that came from the walls uh, was so dangerous that it could actually cause very subtle long-term damage, intelligence and IQ, neurological perceptual problems, uh, behavioral problems, all of which when you looked at different groups of children you can distinguish those who were from a lead-infested neighborhood from those who weren't just by the way they performed in school. Um, lead has this terrible quality on walls. It was once bragged about of what's called chalking. What it meant was that it was easily clean because you could, when a kid put a hand on it and got a mark on it, and they actually advertised it this way, you could wipe it clean by basically wiping off the chalk, the dust mm -hmm. that came off that wall. But chalk was ever-present, and as it disintegrates, it falls on the floors. Kids crawl in it, and they put their hands in their mouth, and then they become slowly accumulate tiny amounts of lead that ultimately destroy and harm their uh, neurological development. And really, well, there is no safe level of lead. And it, it's, no not just, uh, it's not just the IQ, and, and certainly shifting the IQ curve just slightly can make a huge difference at the population level, but lead's also been linked to uh, ADHD, to dyslexia, right. uh, even things like hearing loss, depression, anxiety, panic disorder, early menopause. Um, the data keep accumulating for the toxicity of even tiny amounts, and, and gradually right. over time the government said, well, this is a safe level, and then this is a safe level. and. Uh, right. So. Well, that's what Herb. That's what Herb Needleman found out. He yeah. he did this very elegant study of children's teeth. He called it the Tooth Fairy Study. He went to different schools and different families and got baby teeth that were falling out and from parents. He gave them a, a small amount of money or something, and he collected these teeth and they put them in different piles with identifiers. Mm -hmm. And then he did a study in which he compared the teeth. He ground them up and used the teeth as kind of a surrogate for our bones. He was trying to find out how much lead these kids were accumulating. And the kids who had high amounts of lead in their bones versus those kids who had low amounts of lead. And then he asked teachers and did tests and psychological tests in double-blind studies. And he found that higher levels of lead in their bones, meaning that they were accumulating this stuff slowly, right? And it was just stored where calcium was once stored. Mm -hmm. um, 
had all these behavioral problems. Teachers were saying they couldn't sit in their seats. They were, they were not as smart. They couldn't write. They couldn't follow instructions. They were behavioral problems. All the various measures of ADHD, I'm, I'm sorry, inattention deficit disorder and other problems that basically made them fail at school, mm -hmm. made them behavior problems that determined the course of their life. And these kids were largely poor kids. They were mm -hmm. kids who were living in the most dilapidated houses in, at that time, Philadelphia. Uh, and they were poor kids who already had so many things going against them. But lead was the kind of difference between a poor kid who ended up going to college, going to high school, and getting out of high school and getting a decent, having a decent working class life, and those kids who ended up being on the street and having trouble running into cop, uh, trouble with the police, having behavioral disorders that led to led to incarceration. Right. So, so higher it, rates about 20 years later of incarceration, violent crime, uh, and um, basically lifelong effects that again. Uh, are devastating emotionally, but also economically, uh, in, because they involve the educational system, special ed, the prison industrial yeah. complex, uh, the need for social services. Uh, it's, um, again, all of those costs externalized. Uh, now the, the so-called safe level is considered less than five, but again, no real safe level. That's, that's uh, more of a CDC level. And it's estimated that at least 500,000 kids in this country have lead levels that put them well above that. Um, so if you're screened for lead, the number one thing to do is remove the child from the source of lead. And remediation of a house to get lead out of the walls is a multi-thousand dollar project, which many poor people, who as in all environmental disasters tend to be more affected than those in higher socioeconomic status neighborhoods, they're often not able to afford that. Uh, so removal from the environment with the lead is the most important factor. If you see a level that's anywhere between 15 and 45, the current recommendations are to do an upright plain x-ray of the abdomen. And if you see lead chips within the intestine, uh, to do intestinal decontamination and also increase the intake of calcium and iron to help uh, prevent the lead from being absorbed. Uh, and if you're getting above 50, then you're talking about chelation therapy. Now, I want to make clear there's a lot of nonsense out there uh, about people using chelation therapy, not just for lead, but for removing various toxins in their body. And most of that is quite unsafe, is run by alternative untrained practitioners, often using non-sterile equipment and can lead to exposure to heavy metals and actually increase your health risks from exposure. But um, I would strongly advise our viewers to contact a physician if you have any concerns and certainly to get your child tested, especially if you have a child under age five. The problem is by the time a kid gets to 50, we have to realize the damage is done. Right. By the time the kid gets to 20, even 10, possibly even yeah. five or even below. It's not like you can undo the damage that's done by lead. It's a permanent impulse. You can accommodate to the child. You can give them extra tutoring. You can give them all sorts of special accommodations. But it's the damage is done. There's no undoing the damage. I just want to make your viewers understand that uh, you go to a doctor for and hope that they're going to give you a medicine. Your kid will become normal. This is a permanent disability. Right. 
prevention is really the only answer. It's kind of like nuclear weapons, that there's no sense in physicians and healthcare systems preparing for an all-out nuclear war because right. um, the, the utter breakdown of society is going to render any aid uh, negligible and we'll be back to the bloodletting uh, and right. purging era of the Middle Ages. Uh, this is not just a problem lead poisoning in the U.S., but I should mention that there's at least 12 million people worldwide who are lead poisoned, and the economic cost to the developing nations is about a trillion dollars plus a year. And here in the U.S., it's $55 billion a year. But what's fascinating to me is that we could solve this uh, over about 20 years. The most recent estimates I saw were about uh, $20 billion uh, to basically get rid of all the lead paint in homes to essentially pretty much eliminate major sources of lead exposure and that the upside, the benefits in terms of long-term uh, health care costs and uh, prison costs uh, would be anywhere from $200 billion, which is a 10 to 1 return on your investment, uh, to I've seen estimates being as high as a 200 to 1 return on the investment. Um, I know, David, you were involved in uh, at least one case where California was trying to recoup some money from the lead manufacturers. How did that turn out? It was pretty impressive. I mean, it didn't get as much money as we hoped and originally was decided, but it was an extraordinary public health victory. Um, just for your viewers shortly, in Rhode Island in 19, 2005, uh, the state, the senator of Rhode Island, brought a lawsuit, he was then AG, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, and what he did was he basically said the industry, which had done this to us and who had knowingly put lead on the walls of all of Rhode Island, had a responsibility to help clean it up. And the jury came back. We ended up uh, paying, uh, ordering the company, Sherwin-Williams, National Lead, and a couple of others, up to $4 billion to the state to take lead off the wall so that kids would not be uh, poisoned in the future which was an incredible public health victory. It wasn't waiting suit for past damage. It was a suit to prevent damage in the future. Mm -hmm. That was overturned by the state Supreme Court because it was like a, a very, very provocative case. Mm -hmm. You know, the industry did everything they could to get everyone against this poor, this decision. Mm -hmm. um, but the state of California picked up on that suit and they decided to bring a, a suit on behalf of LA and San Diego and San Francisco and Oakland and the other big cities for the same kind of principle, that they had an obligation to actually pay for the removal of lead. Um, the case also lasted a long time and it made major headlines and they ended up with a $1,100,000,000 decision against the companies um, to remove lead. Um, that occurred in 2012. Just last year, it finally went through the U.S. Supreme Court and it was upheld. The final amount was reduced down to, I think, three or four hundred million dollars. Not enough to reduce lead, but the principle that the industry had a responsibility to clean up the mess they made was really established by California last year. And, and is there any other ongoing litigation today? Yes, there are other states that are interested well, in this. Well, as someone whom the judge praised so highly from what I've read, <laughs> please take care of yourself, David, because we're going to need yeah. you for a lot of these cases. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, have, I, I have a T-shirt that was given to me by one of the community groups that I wore proudly uh, uh, around school, and it says, um, in, this, in the lawsuit, the judge said, 
I was the people's historian, meaning the people, meaning the state of California's expert witness, and they called me the people's historian. I have a, they gave me a shirt that said the people's historian. I'm very proud okay. of that. And certainly an inspiring story and a reminder to all of us, uh, no matter what our profession, but especially those in the health professions, to study history. I think more attention needs to be paid to history and the arts in general and in medicine, which is literature and medicine has been one of my major fields. Uh, but um, I want to mention the water crisis briefly. We only have a couple of minutes left, and I have some concluding remarks. But uh, what happened in Flint is they decided to save money. They would change the water supply from Lake Huron to the Flint River. That water was a little more corrosive, led to some uh, leakage of lead from the pipes. It got into the homes. People were concerned because the water was brownish, and it took a... Uh, uh, very invested, uh, very aggressive pediatrician to go and measure lead, level, lead levels and find out that basically the citizens of Flint, Michigan were being poisoned by their own water supply. Now, most cities in the United States have a variety of uh, different ways of testing or not testing. Um, municipalities differ from uh, sometimes the house next door could be tested or not tested, yours tested or not tested. Um, so there's really no way of knowing and no clearinghouse for data to show who is exposed and who isn't. Um, David, do you recommend that people get their pipes tested or uh, at least contact the local or state agencies to see what's going on, especially if they have kids in school? How, what, what should the average citizen do? Well, the average citizen should demand of their public officials that they go around systematically identifying communities that are at risk, the communities and poor neighborhoods in which pipes are likely to have lead, uh, and also to identify specific homes where young children are living and also where young families are living, because those are the at-risk houses. And if we started doing that systematically through every city, it would be the huge overwhelming costs that we are also always told would overwhelm us. We'd be able to spread it out over a period of years by literally identifying the high-risk spots, the high-risk housing, and paying attention to those first, and then working our way through the rest of the city. So you know, my real prescription is to, one, get the industry held accountable, have them pony up the money for the, for the damage they've done, get the states and the states and the federal government involved in doing systematic surveys to find out where the lead piping is and which families are being most affected by it and which children are living in those areas, and then systematically to begin replacing the pipes over a period of time. Um, the number, the huge number that we often hear about billions and billions of dollars, and we spend that on walls, right? And we're spending it on walls that don't help anyone. Yeah. Uh, it's not like we're a poor nation, but it's the problem is we devalue the people who are saying that this is just too expensive are devaluing the lives of those people who are affected. You and I know that if our children were being threatened by lead, we would be able to do something about it. We would raise a hell. We would have the political muscle ultimately to make sure our local governments did something. But because this is an issue that primarily affects the most disenfranchised, the most powerless people in our country and their children, we have decided that it's too, too, expen too expensive. I put that in air quotes. And that is a moral decision, and that's a moral statement. It's not an economic statement. There's no economic reason why we should be spending money on the things we spend money on, like walls, mm -hmm. right? 
and not spend money on saving our children and future generations if we're a moral community. And th those priorities and the officials that we elect to set those priorities say something about the ethics, morals, and values of our nation. So an important reminder to people uh, is to vote. And vote not just for the candidate or initiative that might benefit you personally, but that might benefit your community, your country, and the world. That's right. I want to close with some concluding remarks. Uh, I'm going to explain the precautionary principle to our viewers because that lies behind both the lead problem, global warming, which we attacked in another episode, gun violence, and so on. And it's, it's a fundamental tenet of public health. And it states, when evidence points towards the potential of an activity to cause significant, widespread, or irreparable harm, not any harm, but irreparable harm, to public health or the environment, options for avoiding that harm should be examined and pursued even though the harm is not yet fully understood or proven. In medicine, this has been related to the adage, first do no harm. The precautionary principle has four practical essentials. Number one, give human and environmental health the benefit of the doubt. Number two, include appropriate public participation in the discussion. Number three, gather scientific, technological, and socioeconomic information. And number four, consider less risky alternatives. The precautionary principle has been endorsed by the American Public Health Association and is applicable to climate change, environmental toxins, disease outbreaks, and even nuclear weapons policy. David, it's been a pleasure to have on someone that I admire so much. As I said, please take care of yourself. You are the leading expert on this topic that is still around. And hopefully this story will be an inspiration to our viewers and will encourage them to attack many of the public health and environmental issues that we've talked about on this program, all of which really uh, have the precautionary principle as a fundamental principle underlying how we can solve those problems. But in terms of realigning our morals, our values, and really this needs to be done yesterday. But I will uh, now say goodbye to David. Please see the Public Health and Social Justice website where you can view all episodes of this program, uh, read open access uh, PowerPoints. It means you can share them with others, articles, links to over a thousand organizations. This has been Prescription for Justice. My name is Martin Donner. Until next time.